We continue our studies today in the book of Romans chapter 8. As I've been studying the book of Romans, it is like being hosed down with a fire hose. What he has been talking about to this point. So then, since there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And since the law has been fulfilled in us through Jesus Christ. And since our sin has already been condemned in the believer, and, and since we now walk in the spirit, brothers and sisters, so then, the conclusion of the matter is that we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We may be under immense pressure to live according to the flesh, but we are not obligated to the flesh. The person who lives under, according to the flesh is under obligation to obey the flesh and the world and the devil in all things. Paul explains that in Romans chapter six, verse 16. Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of, of that same one whom you obey. The person then who lives according to the flesh is under obligation to serve sin. The person who lives according to the flesh is under obligation, under contract. She is tethered to sin. And wherever sin leads, she is bound to follow. The person who is not a servant, a follower of Jesus Christ, is under obligation to sin. Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. And if he tries to do it, what he will find is that he is more devoted to the one than he is to the other. To live according to the flesh is to be devoted to sin. To put an even finer point on it, to be devoted to sin is to worship sin. Wow. It's to be dedicated to sin. The question I have is, why would Paul take the time to point this out to the believers at Rome? He's not preaching an evangelistic sermon. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to saints. Why would Paul take the time to make this point to believers? They're already in the church. They've already confessed faith in Jesus Christ. They've already been baptized. So why is Paul warning them regarding devotion to the flesh? Well, because this is the point at which religion and devotion part ways. 
This is the chasm that separates external faithfulness from interior fealty to God. And this line separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, devotion. Paul says to every believer in verse 13, if you are living in accord with your flesh, you are going to die. Whoa, he just said it flat out. If you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. You will undergo eternal damnation. Why? Because the flesh is sin. And sin results in damnation. The end result of sin, the Bible says, is death. And if I am devoted to sin, I will share in sin's ultimate fate, death and condemnation. But let's be clear. Paul is not saying that if I commit a sin, I am going to die. What he says here is, if I am living in accord with the flesh, this implies an ongoing state. If I am practicing sin, if my lifestyle and my philosophy of life, if my attitude and my disposition are in alignment with my flesh, then I am under obligation to my flesh and I will die in my flesh. It doesn't matter what I may have confessed. It doesn't matter how many times I have been immersed beneath the waters in his name in baptism. If I live my life in alignment with the flesh, this is proof that I am devoted to sin. That the flesh and not Christ is my true master. The tree is not known by its location. The tree is known by the fruit that it bears. That's what Jesus said. And my devotion is not only determined by what I confess with my mouth, but by how I live my life. And if I live my life in accord with the flesh, I, Paul says, I am going to die. Whether I call myself a Christian or not. Whether I come to church every Sunday or not. Whether I am an elder or a pastor or not. If I live my life devoted to sin, I am going to die. And Jesus makes this even more clear. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. But many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me. You who practice, and that's the key word, practice. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. 
You who live your lives in accord with the flesh, Jesus is saying. You who are devoted and you who are defined by your fleshly appetites and your fleshly desires, I never knew you. Yes, you may have prophesied in my name and you may have deceived the masses, but to be known as a prophet has its own benefits, which you have enjoyed. You prophesied in order to make a name for yourself. You prophesied because the prophet is placed at the front of the line. The prophet is given special perks. You have become renowned and revered, and that is your reward. I never knew you. Hmm. There are pastors who pastor for their own personal gain. There are elders who lead God's church out of love of power, not for the love of God. There are ministers that minister for the spotlight and not to the glory of Jesus Christ. These people uh, speaking with Jesus are the ilk of these kinds of persons. Didn't we do all of these wonderful things in your name? And you can tell, you can tell not only by what they say, as they present their religious resumes to Jesus. You can also tell by what they do not say. They say they prophesied, they say they cast out demons, they say they performed many miracles, all works of power. What they do not say is, Lord, Lord, did not we forgive in your name? They didn't say that. Lord, Lord, did not we serve the poor and the least in your name? Lord, Lord, did not we show mercy in your name? And did not we seek your face and your will day and night? They didn't say any of that. And these are the signs and the marks of true devotion to Christ. These are the characteristics that they failed to cultivate. And while they busy themselves with church work, the Holy Spirit was not at work in their hearts. They did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They lived their lives in accord with their flesh and they received the reward of the flesh. I never knew you, depart from me. If you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But, Paul says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I want you to pay special attention to how Paul describes this process of abstaining from sin. Paul doesn't simply say that if you stop sinning, you will live. No, that's not what he says. Paul specifically and intentionally states that if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Hmm. I know people who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ who have been able to renounce ungodly practices by sheer power of their will. I know a few people who have stopped drinking by the power of their own will without the Holy Spirit. I know a woman who was able to stop stealing what she had been doing since she, it is possible to stop sinning by the power of will alone. But God's ultimate goal 
is not simply that one would stop sinning. The rich young ruler said to Jesus, I have obeyed all of the law, and Jesus did not correct him. This young man was able to stop sinning without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But obeying the law does not give one eternal life. Paul has already driven that point home for us in previous chapters. But to obey the laws of God by the Spirit, this is God's desire for us. Not just that we would do what is right and avoid what is wrong, but that we would do what is right, that we would avoid what is wrong by the power of the Spirit. It is not ceasing from sin that qualifies us for eternal life. The only way that we will inherit eternal life is because we have eternal life living inside of us. The Holy Spirit is eternal life. And when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we receive that spirit. And that same spirit, Paul says a few verses before, that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also cause us to rise, will also empower us to put to death the sinful deeds of our bodies. Notice also here that it's not a one-time operation. It is an ongoing practice, a lifestyle. Paul says that we who have the spirit of God are putting to death the deeds of the body. We haven't completely put them to death yet, but we are putting to death the deeds of our bodies. We are cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he in his time and through our diligence as he conquers more and more aspects of our hearts and our minds. We progressively put sin to death within us. That's sanctification. We'll talk more about that in future sermons. Paul continues in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? This is a very important question. Because as we see here from what Paul has said, only those who are led by God's spirit are God's children. So this is a very important question. What does it mean to be led by the spirit? Paul has spent most of his time in this book of Romans driving home the simple idea that all men, are, men and women, are created equal. He spent the majority of his time in the book teaching us this. All people are created equal. There is no difference between the sinner and the person who follows the law. No difference between the Gentile and the Jew. No difference between the slave or the free. No difference between the civilized or the savage. No difference between the circumcised or the uncircumcised. One is gay and one is straight. Paul says that isn't a distinction worth mentioning. One is a natural born citizen, the other is an immigrant. 
That, that doesn't even matter. One is Baptist, one is Catholic. So what? Black or white, Asian or Hispanic, Jew or Greek, or mixed and matched. Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals, pro-life or pro-choice, conservationists or consumers, nation builders or nation destroyers, all of these are distinctions without any eternal difference. Paul the Apostle has spent his time in this book teaching us that humanity is not to be distinguished one from another based on any of these or any other shallow marker. But there is only one eternal difference between us all. Those who are under obligation to the flesh and those who are led by the Spirit of God. Those who make accommodation to fulfill unlawful desires and those who are yielded to God's Holy Spirit. This is the difference that will separate the wheat from the chaff. So what does it mean? What does it mean when a person says, I was led by the Spirit? It can mean two different things. One is subjective, the other is objective. One brother says that he was led by the Spirit to marry a certain woman. Another believes he's being led by the Spirit to move to a new city. Another was led by the Spirit to drive to work on the city streets to avoid the highway. These are all subjective views of what it means to be led by the Spirit. I don't for a second doubt that it happens. In fact, I live the majority of my life in this very way, seeking and desiring to be led by the Spirit. It's legitimate. Sometimes in prayer, God gives you an impression and you don't know where it came from. And he leads you into the right way. That can be what it means to be led by the Spirit. But if we read Paul's words here in their context, we know that's not the way Paul wants to be interpreted. That's not the way Paul wants us to understand when he says, be led by the Spirit. Paul is speaking here in the context of sinful deeds in contrast to righteous living. That's the context. Holiness versus unholiness. And he's already shown us what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. It is to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit working within us. That's what it means. When you are led by the Spirit in the way Paul means it here, your life is coming into alignment with the will of God. Your thoughts and your actions, your words and your deeds are coming into accord with the law of God. Your principles are being reshaped to conformity with God's law. When I say that I was led by the Spirit to take the street instead of the highway, that is completely subjective. You cannot verify or deny whether that's true or not. You do not know. That is my subjective impression. You don't know if God told me to take the street or not. You cannot challenge it because you cannot prove whether it's true or not. It's subjective. But to be led by the Spirit of God as it relates to my practices or my principles, this is not at all subjective. 
and my profession can be confirmed or denied by how well my decisions and my actions are in alignment with the written word of God. The Apostle John says to us, brothers, do not believe every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. There are many people who think they're being led by the spirit of God who are not. The way to test whether I am being led by the spirit of God or not is to contrast my, my understanding of God's will with the word of God. Because the Holy Spirit of God within me never disagrees with the written word of God. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. He would never disagree with his own self. The Holy Spirit wrote the book and he never changes. Times change and people change and preferences change, but God's spirit is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His word is truth. From everlasting to everlasting. And all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. And his Holy Spirit teaches us and trains us, encourages us and empowers us to obey the commandments of God. It's coming full circle now. That being led by the Spirit of God is not a unique, subjective experience for each individual person. There is not one truth for me and another truth for you. Truth is not subjective. God's word is truth both his written word and the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ himself, is the truth. And the truth that Jesus Christ is, is no different than the truth that God had already spoken for thousands of years before Christ came. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to challenge or to replace the truth of the law of God. Jesus Christ came into the world to take over the role of the law as the judge of mankind. The standards of Jesus Christ is the same standard as the law. His righteousness is the same righteousness that is contained in God's law. So what is the difference then between Christ and the law? The difference between Jesus Christ and the law is not to be found in their values or in their principles. In those areas, they are exactly the same. The difference between Jesus Christ and the law is to be found in their administration of the law as it pertains to mankind. Let me tell you what I mean. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but the law is impersonal. You can make an appeal to Jesus Christ for mercy, but the law offers no reprieve. Jesus Christ has the right, and he does, have the right to judge me on the curve. We call it grace. But the law is inflexible. The law expects of me what I cannot give. 
But Jesus Christ honors what I can give, and he shows grace for what I cannot or, or I do not have the power to change. The law, the commandments of God, makes demands of me but offers no support. Jesus Christ makes those same demands, but he empowers me to obey God over time. That's the difference between Christ and the law. The one is a person, the other is a principle. Yet neither Jesus Christ nor the law makes any exception for sin. Sin is sin no matter whether I am devoted to Jesus or not. Sin is not called righteousness under any circumstance because of my relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that my sin could be deemed righteous. That is a misnomer. That is a misunderstanding. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that my sins might be forgiven and washed away. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. And the Spirit of God summons all of God's children to live lives that are in alignment with God's law. And this is how you can know whether you are being led by God's Spirit or by your own flesh. If you desire to obey the law of God as it is written in Scripture, and if you are putting forth every effort to obey by believing and applying the scripture to your life, and if when you find yourself in any kind of sin, you confess and repent, then you can be assured that you are being led by the Spirit of God and that you are a child of God. How do I know this? Because, because the flesh never do that. The flesh doesn't do that. When the flesh does make a person feel like they're righteous, when they're actually a hypocrite, he does that not for God's sake, but for the sake of the flesh. And this is important for us to understand. That the hypocrite in public obeys the law of God. But the hypocrite obeys God's law for ulterior motivations and not for God's sake. That matters that matters it is not enough to do what God says those who are led by God's spirit do the will of God for the sake of pleasing God motive matters Motive matters. Devotion matters. And the children of God are putting to death the sinful deeds of our bodies because the Spirit of God within us infuses us with a desire to be holy and to live without sin. Why do you want to stop sinning? Why do you want to cease from sin? Is it because you're afraid of being found out? 
Is it because you don't want to be shamed? Why do you want to stop sinning? Is it because you want to feel righteous and feel good about yourself so that you can look down on others? Why do you want to stop sinning? Is it because you want to go to heaven? All of those are the wrong reasons. And all of your efforts will ultimately fail if this is your motivation. The children of God desire to cease from sinning because the spirit within us compels us and leads us to be holy as God is holy. That's why we want to stop sinning, because we want to be holy. The Holy Spirit has given us a desire to be holy as God is holy. We make no defense for our shortcomings. We offer no excuses, and we certainly do not attempt to call our unrighteousness righteous. We do not lie against the truth of God's word. And I'll say something. This is why there's going to be so much surprise on Judgment Day. To see the people who gain access to eternal life. <laughs> the people who we saw on earth were so undeserving and so full of sin. Being escorted into eternal life while those who seem to be perfect people are rejected. Motive matters. Because even though the one was engaging in sinful behavior while they were on the earth, that person was always readily acknowledged their sins and their weaknesses to God. That person always desired to do what was right. And by the Spirit, that person was putting forth as much effort as they could to do what was right, even though they dramatically missed the mark. But that other person who is rejected, that other person who seems to have done everything right, did so for the accolades of men. Did so because he wanted to earn his way into eternal life without the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And the only seal, the only credentials that will give us access into God's kingdom is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we will be rejected. Without the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us, we are going to die. Because only the Spirit of God can give life. Hmm. Motive matters, brothers and sisters. Not just that you do right, but that you do right for the right reason. That you do right by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have not received the law which produces so much fear and which exacerbates sin in you. You have not received a spirit that constantly ridicules and threatens your annihilation. You have not received a book of rules that promise your eternal destruction if you do not live up to all of its demands. That's not what you received. 
Paul says, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What an excellent day to be in this verse, Father's Day. We have received this spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have been adopted. We are God's children. And we are no longer controlled by outside influences. We are led from within by the Spirit of God. We are God's children by adoption. God the Father, God the Father only has one offspring. We all know who that is. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, but we have been adopted into God's family as his children, and we cry, Abba, Father. We call God Father. But we also call God dad or daddy. That's what, kind of what it means, Abba, father, daddy. <laughs> My daughter calls me Pops. When she comes to the house, she says, hey, Pops, what you doing? When we're riding along, she says, hey, Pops, take a look at that. She always calls me Pops, but I know when she wants something from me. Because when she wants something, she doesn't call me Pops. She calls me Daddy. And when she says, Daddy, oh, oh, let me go in my pocket. She wants something. <laughs> my son calls me Papadopoulos. I don't know where he got that from. Papadopoulos is what he calls me. But when he calls on the phone and he wants something, he says, hey, Dad. Oh, you want something. <laughs> Abba. It intimates a close relationship and affection. Abba, it implies that we are depending on God alone and that we're certain that God will not let us down. Abba, <clears throat> my father, my, my son calls on the phone. He's certain I'm not going to reject him. Hey, dad, I need A, B, C, D, and E. He's certain I'm going to give him what he desires and more, more often than not, he's actually mistaken. But nevertheless, that's when he calls me dad, when he wants something from me. Mm -hmm. But just because someone calls God their father doesn't mean that God is their father. You gotta take a turn. Just because someone calls God father doesn't mean that God is their father. We learned that from Jesus Christ himself with his conversation with the Pharisees in the book of John chapter 8 verse 39. I'm going to read it to you. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They retorted to Jesus and said, we were not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father. God is our father. That's what everybody says nowadays. All of us are God's children. God is everybody's father. That's just not true. Jesus said to them, listen, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God and am here. For I have not even come on my own, but God sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Hmm. They claim God is their father. But Jesus Christ said that the proof is not just in the speaking, the proof is in the eating. They acted like the devil, they spoke like the devil, and they did what the devil would do. And by these proofs, Jesus Christ determined that their father was in fact the devil. And according to Jesus' standard here, this is what it means to have God as your father. It is to want to do the desires of God. I'll say it again. This is what it means to have God as my father. It is to want to do the desires of God. Too many professing believers call God father, but they do not want to do what God desires. In fact, just the opposite. They want God to give them permission to do the will of the devil without any consequences. Oh, ooh, I'll say it again. Too many believers want God to give them permission to do the will of the devil without any consequences. That's what a lot of Christians think Christianity is all about. I confess Jesus, Lord, I said I believe in Jesus, now I can do whatever I want to do, and Jesus is just going to rubber stamp whatever I choose to do. So that God is not actually their father, they want God to be their sinful enabler. But God will not be implicated in sin. The children of God call God Father because we desire to do God's will. How well we accomplish that may differ from one saint to another, but that is our desire to please God. And this is the sign that we are the children of God. Not only by what we do and not only by what we say, but by what we desire in our hearts. And if you have a desire to do the will of God today, whether you're failing or succeeding, that's not the point. The true test is whether or not you sincerely desire to do the will of God. There are a lot of people, brothers and sisters, who are living some of the most morally ragged lives you will ever see. But somehow within they believe in Jesus Christ and they desire to do what is right. Even though they cannot find it, they desire. And the only way you can desire to be pleasing to God is if you have the spirit of God. Hmm. The flesh never desires to do the will of God. Now let, let me just make the distinction one more time. There are people in the world who desire to do what is right for their own personal reasons that have nothing to do with God. That's not being led by the Holy Spirit. That's just a moral person who wants to do what is right for the sake of doing what is right. Hmm. 
A person who is indwelled by the Spirit of God desires to do what is right because righteousness is in them. <laughs> and they are empowered to do what is right from within. They desire to do what is right from within. It's a huge difference. There are a lot of very moral Christians who are going to find themselves in hell. Morality is not taking anyone into the kingdom of God. There are some immoral people who have faith in Jesus Christ, who confess that what they are doing is wrong and they sincerely desire to break free, but they cannot. Huh. And their desire is going to grant them eternal life. Stick with me for this. Yeah. It's Pride Month. I've had one or two conversations with some Pride people over the last few days. And I explained to a brother, I said to him, I said, listen, man, I'm not talking about what you're doing with your body, what you're doing with your life. That is, that's not the issue here. I am saying to you that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and if you sincerely desire to do what is right according to the word of God, even you can be saved. But it is a non-starter to say to me that what I am doing is right no matter what the word of God says and I am still a child of God. That is incorrect. That is unbiblical. If I confess that I am a sinner and that what I am doing is wrong, I know that what I'm doing is wrong, I keep on doing it because I'm bound by something, but I believe in Jesus Christ, I may very well enter the kingdom of God. Huh, you're gonna, and anyone who's shocked by that, look at your own life. <laughs> we don't have to go very far. If you believe you can go with your deficiencies and your shortcomings, why can't somebody else? The point is, what do you desire? There are bondages in this world that are difficult to escape from. Alcoholism, all kinds of drugs, people are bound to sin. That does not mean that they cannot be children of God even though they're in bondage. You are. But the foolish person who says to me that what I am doing is right no matter what the Bible says, what I'm doing is right. Well, you've all, that, that's a non-starter. You can't make it because you think you're going to go into the kingdom of God and overthrow God's rules. You're not going. I have no question in my mind that if you're calling God a liar, you're not going. But if you understand that God is true, even though I can't live up to the standard, God's word is true, I believe his word, but I have a problem, well, welcome to the club because I have a problem too. <laughs> and we're gonna depend on the grace of God to fulfill our desire to live holy and complete lives. And we're going to wait together and go through the sanctification process together until we meet that goal. Ah. 
That is the point. That person, no matter what they're doing, that person can be assured. If they agree with the word of God, they're agreeing with the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by their own power. And when you are led by the Spirit, when you are a child of God, Paul concludes in verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let me say this, that testimony of the Holy Spirit is not a subjective testimony. There are some who would say to me, yeah, I'm sinning, I'm doing my own thing, but I know within, I know within that I'm a child of God. No, you don't, no, 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 you don't. If your life is not in alignment with the word of God and you are not even attempting to get your life in alignment, no, that's not the spirit of God living in you. No, it's not, and you're not a child of God. I'll tell you that to your face, you're not a child of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. He testifies by giving us the will and the desire to do the will of God. That is the sign that I am being led by the Spirit of God. That is the sign that I am in fact a child of God. That there is within me a sincere desire to do his will. If this is absent, I have no reason to feel assured of my salvation. And Paul concluded that if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. That the blessing and the benefits and the glory and the honor that God the Father has bestowed upon Jesus Christ, God the Father will also bestow upon every one of his children. Huh that we will share in the victory, that we will share in the glory, that we will share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If indeed, Paul says, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, we have to suffer. The children of God will inherit the kingdom of God along with Jesus Christ. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. Oh my goodness, that, that's something to think about right there. Whatever belongs to Jesus Christ already belongs to all of God's children. But only if we are led by the Spirit of God and we suffer with Christ. Now, I want to get real for a second before I close. I want to get real for a second. That sometimes, we all know it's true, sometimes putting to death the deeds of our bodies, sometimes putting to death our carnal nature can be a very painful undertaking. Can anybody agree with me on that? Sometimes putting to death my sinful nature can be a very painful. What do I mean? I mean that when I was raised by somebody who physically abused me and always talked down to me, when I come from a background of abuse and anger, it is very difficult when the Holy Spirit within me says, Calvin, you have to forgive. That's painful. That causes me to, I don't want to forgive. And the Holy Spirit is saying, if you want to please God, you have to forgive. This is suffering. 
Paul's not just talking about physical suffering. Paul understands that being sanctified is akin to suffering. It is not always easy to cease from sin. It is not always easy to do what is good. It's like the alcoholic who wants to stop drinking cold turkey. He has withdrawals. And the deeper into sin a person has immersed themselves, the more difficult it is for us to break free from certain strongholds in our lives. It can be a painful process. In many ways, to be sanctified is to suffer. I'm going to have a lot more to say about sanctification in future sermons because I think that sanctification is that one aspect of salvation that we have seemed to have just forgotten about. We go straight from, I believe in Jesus, I confess him with my, my mouth, to no matter what I do, I'm going to heaven, I'm already saved. And we skip all the way over being sanctified. Nobody wants to be sanctified because sanctification is painful. In many ways, to be sanctified is to suffer, but it all starts with a desire to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy. And if you have that desire today, brothers and sisters, and if you are putting forth every effort to learn how to break free by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you have no reason to feel ashamed or to feel insecure, no matter what your hurt, your habit, or your hang-up. And you have every reason to believe that you are a child of God if you are being led by the Spirit of God. Are you being led by the Spirit of God today? That's the only question. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Do you have an earnest desire within your heart to be pleasing in God's sight? I'm not, I'm not talking about whether or not you're pleasing. I'm not talking about how good a job you're doing. I'm asking the question, are you desiring? Do you want to do what is right? For the sake of pleasing God. If you do, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. But if you're going through the motions of religion, thinking that your morality is going to be your badge or your get-in free card, you are going to be sadly mistaken and condemned. And Jesus Christ is going to say to you, I never knew you. I never lived inside of you. I never abided within you. You wasted your life and wasted your time. You should have been at the club partying. You may as well have been party because you have, you have no reward here. Are you indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Are you receiving his guidance? Whether or not you can do what he's calling you to do or not, are you receiving his guidance? And is that guidance in alignment with the word of God? If so, then you can be assured that no matter how weak you might be, no matter how sinful you may be, you are a child of God. All of us are being sanctified. None of us have arrived. But the key is to yield and to submit each and every day to the Holy Spirit. 
to desire to do what is good, to believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has in fact taken over your life, that your life has become hidden in Jesus Christ in God, and that the life you see before you is the life of Christ. To believe that, to remind yourself of that each and every day, I guarantee you that if you do it for a month, you will see the change in your own disposition by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, your words can sometimes be so overwhelming and so complicated. Not because it's hard to understand, but because of its simplicity. Father, we thank you that we are indwelled, that the Holy Spirit is living within us. We thank you for the promptings of the Holy Spirit to do what is right. We pray today for the power to break some of the strongholds in our own lives. You have led us to this point. You have shined your light on the sin that is within our own hearts. We confess today. We come to you with our hands lifted high in confession that we are wretches undone. But our desire is to be pleasing in your sight. Our desire is to be holy as you, Father, are holy. Just as you have granted us the will to desire to do what is good, to avoid what is evil, now also we pray that you would give us the power by your Holy Spirit to overcome by the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for adoption as sons and daughters into your kingdom. Thank you for the inheritance that awaits us on the other side. We give your name all the glory, the honor, and the praise. And we desire today to submit to your sanctifying power, to the process of being sanctified, of being made whole, Thank you, Lord God, for your son, Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice, for the blood that he shed, for the cleansing power that is in his blood. Help each of us to make full use of these means of grace, to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.